Back in March, we didn't know what to expect from this pandemic. Nothing in our economic models could have predicted what we've been through the last six months. To say it's been unprecedented is cliche now, but it's still the right term to use. We've been talking about returning to normal since then, but the goalposts for what normal is keep moving. Government programs have helped people and businesses scrape by, and many people have found creative ways to make ends meet. But as more businesses are able to welcome customers back in some or any form, it's starting to feel like we can see the light at the end of this tunnel. My guest this episode understands both the business side and the government side. The Honourable John Manley joins us to talk about how governments and businesses have responded to this crisis, what changes we should bring with us into the future, and what he asks himself to guide his decisions. He shares his perspective on the massive borrowing that's helped us weather this storm and has some cautions for the government as normal starts to look more like it used to. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest this episode is the Honourable John Manley. John's various roles have brought him to the upper echelons of power in politics and business. He's held senior roles in government as Deputy Prime Minister and served as Ministers of Industry, Foreign Affairs and Finance. Since leaving politics, he served as President and Chief Executive Officer of the Business Council of Canada. These days, he's an active corporate director serving on the boards of CIBC, CAE and TELUS. He's also joined Bennett Jones LLP as a senior business advisor. In short, John Manley is someone with a set of experiences on Canadian businesses and the Canadian economy that is unparalleled. John, welcome to Bright Future. Thank you, Michael. As someone with extensive experience working with businesses in Canada, what have you been watching for and or concerned about during the initial shutdown and gradual reopening we've seen over the past few months? Of course, this is unprecedented, not something we've ever seen before. We've seen cyclical downturns. We've seen the Great Recession in 2008, 2009 that began as a liquidity crisis and originated in the financial sector. This time we have, for the first time in modern times, a government-mandated shutdown of almost all aspects of the economy, and not just in one country, but globally. This is truly uncharted territory. All of us began wondering was, how do we sustain our business entities? How do we sustain our workers and their families through a period of time in which economic activity essentially closed down? It's put a tremendous burden on policymakers and governments to find the solutions to those issues. What are the kinds of things that you are looking at as we see the reopening starting? And what are the concerns that you have in terms of what this might mean for our economy? In March, when it became clear the extent of this, all businesses began to look to their own balance sheets and see where they were at in terms of cash and liquidity. And many of them drew down on facilities that they'd arranged with their banking institutions just to make sure they had enough cash to get through. They tried to preserve whatever forms of revenue that they could find. And in many cases, and I've seen this directly with CAE, they devised new lines of business. CAE, great company, world leader in making aircraft simulation equipment, over 70% market share in civil aviation 
simulators in the world, which is not something many Canadians actually know about, because they know how to do instrumentation, they know how to bend metal, as they say, make things out of metal, started making ventilators. And they were approved by Health Canada. They're high standard. They've got all of the instrumentation that you would expect in a high-end medical device. And it's a whole new line of business in medical devices for a company that's built its reputation in other areas. Many companies have had to reinvent themselves, devise either new products, new ways of doing business, re-examine their cost structure, re-examine their use of physical premises. That's all been happening pretty much simultaneously through this crisis. Looking at the government programs to support businesses as they get through this, they've introduced a number of programs, although the adoption seems to be lower than had been anticipated. Why do you think businesses have not been quick to jump on these programs? Some of the programs were a little bit complex. They had entry requirements that some businesses felt were too difficult to be confident that they would comply and therefore qualify. But others gained a lot of traction. The wage subsidy program, which covered 75% of employee wages, was quite well subscribed. And I think one of the reasons for that is that employers saw the benefit of continuing to have their workers connected to their company, engaged, feel some sense of ownership of the company, even though they weren't actually working. Government covered the large portion of their wages. Companies covered the rest together with benefits and so on. So the people actually maintained their attachment to the workforce and to the companies. I think that was a program that businesses found helpful. One of the big problems, Michael, and I'm involved with large companies, and I was as head of the Business Council of Canada as well. One of the big problems that faced policymakers through this is the entire small business sector. That's not just your mom and pop shops, but companies with 100 to 200, 250 employees are in that small, medium-sized business category. They are a large portion of the Canadian economy. They are a large portion of the Canadian workforce. They tend not to have scale. That's why they're small. They tend to be undercapitalized. In this crisis, when revenue stopped, they have a real problem because many of their expenses continued on and they didn't have the cash resources to keep going. We've seen some relief on that. We've seen you know, a deferral of payments on loans, for example, from the banks. We've seen, in some cases, extensions of special treatment by commercial landlords so that small businesses could get through it. This autumn, we'll be able to see exactly how the small business sector comes out of this as we begin to reassort a kind of normal behavior. But it's been extremely challenging, I'd say, for the small business sector. And I don't think we know yet the full extent of the damage in that area. John, you talk about normal and this idea of new normal, but none of this actually feels normal. It's certainly new. As a director for many organizations, what are the kinds of questions that you're asking to help you understand how the company is doing, 
how they're going to react to this pandemic world, which is evolving, certainly on a monthly basis, if not on a weekly basis. Well, you're right. It doesn't feel normal, but it does feel new, which is why they call it, I guess, a novel virus. It's new. From the director's point of view, there are a couple of things that I look at. I start with the health and safety of the teams, the executive teams that I work with and the employees that are employed by these organizations. I don't have any patience for the doubters or disbelievers in the medical science and what's recommended. I don't think it's anyone's job that's not a specialist to be able to say that you should do this and not that. And if the medical specialists are saying wear a mask, then I'm for wearing masks. My starting point is, are we doing everything we can to ensure the ongoing health and safety of the teams, the people that are behind the organizations? Then I think I would move from that to what's happening to the finances of our entity? What's our cash position look like? What banking facilities do we have and can we draw on them if we need to? And how are we going to look when we're able to see revenue start to reemerge and grow back to something like normal? Are there other things? I gave the ventilator example that we can be doing to generate revenue and cash during this period. What are the government programs that we might be taking advantage of if they apply to us? How do we ensure that we're still an entity that exists and is able to do business as the restrictions begin to come off. Do you have a time frame that you look at in terms of where we can predictably tell where the organization is going? This has evolved over the months that we've been in this. When we first realized at the beginning of March that this was serious and we were going to have to really drastically modify how we were doing business, I don't think any of us really fully appreciated how long this would last. For me, I only became really convinced when the Stanley Cup playoffs were canceled. That was the clear indicator that, okay, these are definitely not normal times. But I look forward now, optimistically, I would say we may have a vaccine toward the end of 2020. Its manufactured distribution is going to take us into 2021. I'd say at best having normal activities in the sense of people being together and working together and interacting in a more normal fashion is probably into the late winter or early spring of 2021. And I think that's a bit, if anything, it's a bit optimistic. You talk about how many organizations have adapted and you gave the example of CAE earlier and the pivot they made Many organizations have adapted to this new reality, and some of those changes we hope are temporary, like wearing masks inside, but others are really seeming to have unleashed an innovation and an opportunity to create changes that maybe people had been talking about or thinking about for many years, and the pandemic has just made that possible. What are the kinds of changes that you've seen that you think we should hold on to after the pandemic? The entire adaptation around work from home is something that's going to be of lasting value. I don't think every company will have everybody working from home all of the time, but I do think that 
the ability to work part weeks from home, to work from home on occasion, especially to work from home if you're not feeling particularly well, but you're not really sick enough that you've got to stay in bed. I think we've learned how to do this. And I think many companies have found that productivity was maintained throughout this. It certainly provides an opportunity for parents who may have to work from home because they have a child that's sick and can't go to school. All those things that have been so difficult for parents to handle over the years, there are now ways that we've learned to adapt to those. It may not be a great time to be in the commercial real estate business because I think many are going to realize that there are probably ways that they can reduce their footprint in real estate, that they can carry on their business occupying less space. There'll be a reduced density element offset by an element of work from home that will more or less work out. Those are interesting developments that a lot of businesses are going to experience. What we've seen is worldwide, people have done a lot more shopping online than they ever had before. Many retailers are discovering that they have to have their own online capabilities, and that's developing quickly. We can't have everything sold through one channel. It's going to be important to have other channels as well. That's what's made Shopify Canada's most valuable company these days because they actually provide the core competence for smaller businesses to actually provide direct online retail capabilities. But it's going to actually be something that we're going to watch closely because for many people, shopping is not strictly utilitarian. It's an activity. They like to go to shops. Shops are expensive ways to compared to online to merchandise your goods because there's rent to pay, there's staff to employ, it takes an additional effort. There's a big adjustment in the retail sector that's coming at us. Some of it will be good for people and some will be more challenging, especially for the retailers to adapt. One of the known unknowns is what the aftermath of this will be in the consumer marketplace, because the growth of online retail has been impressive during the pandemic when we've been, to some degree, prevented from going into shops and stores. And many retailers are finding their own path to distribution online. At the same time, I'm not convinced yet that consumers are not going to want to resume the activity of shopping and will want to go back to the shops and stores and see people and you know try on clothes and make sure the shoes fit before they order them. There's no doubt that we've seen an incredible growth, but I think it remains to be seen how much of that is an immediate effect of the pandemic and how much of it changes behavior in a deep and lasting way. But there are lots of other things happening too that I think will last, Michael. One example is that we've seen an adaptation in the healthcare system. Increasingly, provinces are permitting physicians to charge for online or telephonic communication with their patients. Nobody during the pandemic particularly wanted to go and sit in a doctor's office waiting room. And many of them were too small to be able to accommodate social distancing. The practice of having 
an online connection is one that will last through to the other end of this pandemic, especially for older people who find it sometimes difficult to get out in wintertime and go and see their physician. Having the ability to do online direct health communication is going to be very beneficial. And I think that's a trend that is going to last. As a former finance minister, you have a unique perspective on the government's role and the challenges we might face in bringing spending and deficits back to pre-pandemic levels. What has your perspective been on the government side of this equation? Well, you know, in my time, we were balancing the budget. We were watching our debt in relation to our GDP go down steadily till it was into the upper 20% range, having started at the federal level, at least at almost 70%. To see this reversal, to see us run a deficit of roughly $350 billion in one year is completely mind-blowing to me. They're numbers that are hard to compute. That being said, I think that the necessity for government action, both on the fiscal side and monetary side, by the Bank of Canada is what's kept us all going through all of this. In other words, the impact of the pandemic in financial terms has largely fallen on the public sector, on the government, more so than on individuals or individual businesses. That's not universally true. Some businesses are gravely impacted. But there's been lots of relief provided by government action. It's going to be criticized. It's already being criticized in some cases, legitimately so. But the way I looked at it through all of this, even though I'm staggered by the number, is if your house is on fire and you're having a bucket brigade to throw water on the fire, you're going to spill a lot of water as the buckets get passed up the line. But as long as most of it gets on the fire, that's what you're trying to do, to try to to save what you can. By and large, this action was necessary, and it's put us in a position to hopefully come out of this in better shape than would otherwise have been the case. How difficult is it going to be to dial this back? It's going to be very challenging, and we're going to begin to see that when the CERB for individuals runs out at the end of September and people have to convert to employment insurance and the government's trying to make changes to the employment insurance scheme so that they capture self-employed and gig economy workers. That's fraught with challenges and hazards. This is going to be difficult public policy, and it's going to be challenging for individuals as well as they deal with this. And of course, we don't know what the autumn will bring in terms of second waves of the virus. This is not over. There's lots of work left to be done by public policymakers, possibly by governments. I think the spending has been justified and necessary, but we should not forget that while we can manage this, It can't be permanent. We have to dial back the borrowing and we have to stabilize our growth and indebtedness. 
and begin to reduce that so that we're ready for whatever the next thing is that comes at us, whether it's a different pandemic, another financial challenge as we had in 2008, or who knows what. It's good to make sure that you have the resources and the reserves available. It's a good thing that Canada was in as good shape as it was. Not every country was able to do what we've been able to do. That's because we've been pretty good managers of our finances in this country since the early 90s. But we've got to get back to that. We can't have governments believe that there are no consequences to spending more than they take in because the consequences are going to be felt. If nothing else than in lost opportunity costs, if you were going to borrow $350 billion and didn't have to deal with the loss of income and revenue in both the corporate and the household sector, think of what we could have built with that in Canada. Some of that infrastructure and capability still needs to be built, and we're going to have to find ways to do it. They say never let a crisis go unused. We are hearing many people's visions for what the post-pandemic Canada can be and how we can make changes to the country that we think are important. Do you have any recommendations or areas where you think we as a country should focus to try to move forward? Yeah, I think one of the things we've realized is that in a country as vast as Canada, having the world's best telecommunications infrastructure is really key. A lot of that can be done by the private sector where we have good scale in our telecom infrastructure, but a lot of it in rural and remote Canada could benefit by partnerships between government and the private sector. Because being able to do all the things that we've been able to do in urban areas with telecom, whether we're on WebEx or Microsoft Teams or Zoom or any of the other platforms, BlueJeans, I've done them all. But you do need good connectivity. We need that for all Canadians. We have the technical know-how in the private sector to do it. We don't have an economic case for the private sector fully to do it. And that's where government could come in in public-private partnerships to make that happen. I think there are things we can do in public transportation. I think that it's time that we assembled the land to put dedicated passenger rail service in the corridor in eastern Canada because running our passenger trains along freight train tracks is never going to get us the speed and efficiencies that will make that an attractive form of transportation. Maybe it's a COVID reality to say, let's do this and let's do it properly and do it right. In healthcare, essentially we have a single payer system, but we have 13 single payers because it's really provincial and territorial jurisdiction for the most part. Learning some of the lessons that we have learned from this public health crisis ought to make us that much better at how we manage our healthcare system, how we determine what are the things that we really need to provide for ourselves as Canadians. It has taught us that maybe there are some things that we need to do for ourselves, that we need secure supply chains to provide essential things that could be in medical supplies, medical appliances, it could be military requirements, security requirements. There are things certainly in terms of food that we need to do for ourselves, even if we can source them in normal times 
more cheaply elsewhere. We're going to need to define what those core competencies are that we should maintain as a country and make sure we find ways that we can construct them and retain them. John, this is a challenging time for everyone, for businesses, for families, for individuals. What are the things that you're optimistic about as we enter this next phase as a country? Well, first thing I'd say, Canada, I think, has shown a remarkable resilience as a group of people. I mean, we're very disparate and we're spread over a large geography, but we haven't seen the kind of social tensions and upheaval that we've seen in some other countries. We've shown once again that Canadians, by and large, they want to be informed and they think for themselves. But when authorities say it's time to stay indoors, it's time to wear masks, there are always some exceptions that people want to push the limits. But we've shown that we're a pretty cohesive society. I think that's a great strength because as we come out of this, that social cohesion and that sense of purpose that we share as a country is something that leaders can capitalize on to build us up going forward. I'm optimistic about Canada. Even federal-provincial relations, that old sore point, and seemed to go pretty well during the pandemic. I'm hopeful and optimistic about Canada and about Canadians. But I also think that when you look at our economy as a whole, we have responded pretty well. And the great thing, certainly my experience as industry minister, one of the great things about Canadian business is that you can get 100 people in a room and you're dealing with a big portion of the Canadian business world. That just actually makes it that much easier to build a common direction, common outcomes. For us, we're not in a bad position. We're going to have some problems we have to address. Some of those are in the educational sector, and I don't mean just the return to classroom, but also the funding of our post-secondary education system, which is going to be deeply stressed as a result of this. If we address some of those problems, I think Canada is well-positioned to do well in the post-pandemic world. John, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and perspective. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Bright Future by the Conference Board of Canada. This series is produced by Jen DeHamel. Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer and Andy Joy is our writer. Ideas were contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett, and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.